We are in the process of going through all of our mission, uh, what it means for us, our three-pronged mission, what it means for us to fulfill the vision of helping to win the city. And that's what really gets our staff up and our leadership up in the morning, is not just serving you, though it is the pleasure of our life to serve you. It is serving our community through you, trying to figure out how we can see Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area, one to Christ. Um, and so that, that, along with combining with the other churches in the area, both in D.C., in Maryland, and uh, Virginia, uh, give, us, give us a fresh inspiration on a regular basis um, to, to make sure that we are fashioning our congregation as one that can really accomplish our goals. And I am, in, I am in relationship with a number of pastors in the area, both in D.C. and Virginia and broader Virginia here and in Maryland. And not, no church can do what I'm talking about on its own, but all of us together might be able to have an impact. And so our mission is pretty much wrapped around that idea, number one, to encounter Christ, what it means to encounter the biblical Christ, everybody, every individual, to have a serious real encounter with who Jesus is, to repent of their sins, to get right with him, and then find themselves involved in his purposes. Two, to experience community, what it means for people to come into the congregation and kind of have a, a, a sense of, of family, that you are a part of somebody else, they are a part with you in the same house, and together we can always do more than we ever could individually. God never intended us to live a siloed Christian life that we are to be connected and as we are connected, we help one another. We assist one another in our growth. And then that effort of assisting one another should translate into after we finish a meeting like this, we walk out into the community and have an impact out there. We extend the kingdom of God beyond ourselves. Today we're going to talk about that. So turn with me over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. <clears throat> and we're going to read a lengthy passage of scripture the details and encounter that Jesus had with a woman uh, that was fairly unusual, though we read it as something that is normative because we read our Bibles every day, every day and we think this, it's in the Bible, so surely it's, it's normal. Well, a lot of stuff that happens in Scripture, though it may be supernatural in that the Bible is supernatural in its writing and there are supernatural things that happen in it and we expect it when we read it, simply because it is doesn't mean it was normal to the people who were going through it. The title of the message is Desiring Well Water, Pushing Boundaries. And I'm making a play on the word well. John chapter 4, 7 through 26. There came a woman of Samaria down to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Unparentheses. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the, the well and drank, it of himself, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Verse 13. 
Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all this way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called to Christ. When he comes... He'll declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord, help as we study your word. In going through this narrative, um, Jesus is embarking on a ministry that is going to confound everybody with whom he comes in contact. Those who are Jewish are going to be surprised about what he does with people outside of the Jewish world. And those outside of the Jewish world are going to be surprised that he, he even wants to help them. He's going to surpass everybody's expectations and do the unusual. The prior six verses before this speak about how John the Baptist and now, who was the forerunner of Christ, he was the guy who paved the way for Christ's ministry so that whatever Jesus did could happen quicker. John the Baptist had been taken captive, no longer could minister freely, Jesus pretty much now realized the handover is complete. I now can do what I need to do fully now that John is finished. John and Jesus were friends, and they were compatriots in ministry, if you will. They dovetailed. Yet there was something new that Jesus was going to bring that John could not. The people in the region of Jerusalem called Judea had now begun to get a little bit concerned about Jesus because John the Baptist had been taken captive and they thought, okay, at least that problem is dealt with. But now Jesus, it said, in verses 1 through 6 of the same chapter, was actually baptizing more people than John the Baptist and had more disciples. Now it says that Jesus wasn't baptizing, but his disciples were. And the religious leaders were thinking, well, we've got to get him now. We thought we dealt with the problem, but now we've got to get him. And so he retreated to Galilee. Galilee is about 90 miles north of where Jerusalem is. And on the way to Galilee, you have to go pretty much in order to get supplies through Samaria. Samaria happens to be the region where a former kingdom existed. Now, in the monarchy of Israel, you've got a split from the time of Saul, who was the first king, to the time of David, who was the next king, through to Solomon, the next king. You had a united kingdom, one kingdom called the nation of Israel. 
Solomon had a son named Rehoboam who did not respond wisely to some entreaties. As a result, ten tribes left him. And he had two. He had Levi and he had Judah. Ten tribes went to the north and established their own kingdom. And now Israel was known as two separate kingdoms. One to the north, one to the south. The one in the south was called Judah. The one to the north was called Israel. Israel's kingdom lasted about 220 years or so. And they had not one good king. Not one. They had one that wasn't bad, but that's only because he didn't do as bad as the bad did. (laughs) Judah had some really good kings, but Israel's reign was brief in terms of biblical history. And Assyria, a nation to the north and to the east a little, came and invaded Israel and overtook that entire kingdom, took all the people of note, dispersed them throughout the world, and left only the poor there to cultivate the land. They then imported their own folks to that nation, that capital city, and then those people began to intermarry. The city stayed fairly vibrant, but it was no longer a city that had Israel roots, not like it did before. It didn't have a heritage of everybody proclaiming Abraham as their daddy and, and, and all of Israel's history and their heroes as theirs. Now they not only did that, but they, they had some syncretism in it in that Assyrian gods were brought in and different other idolatrous practices. So much so that the people in Judah who considered themselves real Jews no longer considered the people in Samaria real Jews. They looked at them as less than. This is why in the commentary that we just read, the narrative, it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If a Samaritan were to give you a cup of water and you were thirsty, generally you would throw it out and break the cup if you were a Jew. If you were about to die, you'd drink it and then you'd break the cup. This is how bad the Jews thought of the Samaritans. Now, we don't have any commentary of how the Samaritans thought of the Jews, but we think it was reciprocated. They just, in short, didn't like one another. And when we talk about extending the kingdom, this is what it looks like for Jesus. Because in the passage before, verses 1 through 6, it says John the Baptist was taken captive. Jesus realized that the the religious leaders in the region of Judea were now beginning to to get him and it wasn't time for him to to be crucified yet, suffer. So he fled, going to the north to minister in Galilee for a bit. And in doing so, it says this, and when John the Baptist was taken, Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist had said the same thing. But now that John was no longer there, Jesus was carrying on the ministry. Jesus was, was doing his best to bring whatever he knew about kingdom in heaven down to earth. God's kingdom was to be presented to people like they had never seen before. And nobody could do it better than the one who was the king. This is what Messiah meant. It meant a lot of other things. One who would save people, deliver them, help them. But ultimately it meant the king of the Jews who would come and set up a kingdom that would have no end and there would be no cessation to its expansion. The Jews were looking for this Messiah, and indeed, because the Samaritans kind of harkened back to their Jewish roots every once in a while, though not purely, they, they began to think, Messiah's coming. This is where this woman gets this idea. Messiah's coming, and he'll reveal everything to us, right? The Samaritan woman says. So a whole group of people were waiting for this one to come, and nobody could present the kingdom like the king himself. And he was coming to give it.
make sure that his people and the people who were not his people, that his people thought didn't deserve this kingdom, could have it. Jesus loved to break boundaries. Take the expectations of folks and dash them. Because our expectations of what we want God to do for us or what we think he will do through us are one of two things, if not both. Either too small or all wrong. And God wants to fix that so that we can begin to at least right-size our life according to his will. If not, we'll always be tunnel-visioned and think small. Here Jesus is doing something unusual because it says he comes to say the kingdom of God is at hand. And the writer John goes into this story next to show you what the kingdom of God would look like. Jesus wound up going from Judea on the way to Galilee, stopping in Samaria, and he stopped at a well. Now, he's got this all-knowing thing going on. So he knows what's going to happen probably, and he understands once he gets in the conversation exactly where he's going with the conversation. He doesn't have any confusion about it. But everybody else who doesn't know who he is or where he's going in the conversation doesn't know what's going on or where he's trying to take them with word. No clue. And in this conversation, I beg you, don't begin to ascribe any religious good behavior to this woman. I'm not saying she's a bad lady. She's just a lady. But she is not a true worshiper. She doesn't know the first thing about God. And everything about her says reputation. This woman was infamous in her city. Five husbands. And now she's shacking up with number six. After five, I guess I couldn't get it right. And so I'm just not going to commit at all. We'll get to shacking up in a minute. <laughs> and Jesus is sitting at the well. And he sees this woman coming. And he says, give me a drink. Now, I don't know how the woman postured herself as she was coming to the well. I don't know. But I have a feeling that it was fairly rare to see a man sitting in a well considering it was pretty much relegated to the female side of the species to do all the water gathering. Not that men couldn't do it, but it was unusual. And considering that this woman did have a reputation with men and that the man she was living with now was not committed to her nor she to him, I have a feeling that when she saw a man silhouette 50 yards away, she kind of got out her little compact just saying I'm you know it's not the Bible but I'm just saying I'm not ascribing this is a religious encounter she ain't going to church she comes up Jesus says give me a drink <laughs> okay Jesus has started the conversation because she couldn't she couldn't it, it was against culture for a woman without her husband, her father, or elder brother, to begin a conversation with a man in public against culture. And it was definitely against culture to begin a conversation with a Jew. I don't know whether Jesus commended himself to her as a Jew by the way he dressed, but definitely by his accent. 
And so she probably wasn't going to say anything, but then he says something. And when she understands that this man is beginning a conversation, that they aren't just having this silent treatment because neither one of them is supposed to speak to one another for two reasons. One, a Jew is not supposed to speak to a Samaritan. That's how much they didn't like one another. I'm not saying that was right. I'm just giving you history. They didn't like one another. And two, Jesus is crossing the barrier of a man talking to a woman without her husband, father, or elder brother there. Nobody did that. Jesus crossed two barriers to say what he needed to say, which means to this woman who has no religious background to speak of, saying, he's interested. (laughs) I'm telling you, that's all she's thinking. That's all she's thinking. May I have a drink? Because her next phrase is, why are you talking to me? Why are you a Jew talking to a Samaritan? She, she kind of wants to know, are you interested? Because you're breaking a lot of barriers just for a cup of water. Jesus said, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him, and he could give you water. So you, the kind of water you wouldn't ever have to come back for. And see, Jesus knew this. This woman had had five husbands and the man she was living with now was not her husband she'd been dipping her ladle in the wrong relational well for a long time and had never gotten full never gotten satisfied and so he's using a lot of imagery here that she's not getting she's only getting the relational side she's not getting the spiritual side yet he said if you knew who was asking you you'd ask me for water and, and I imagine she's thinking this Oh, you want me to ask you? (laughs) Okay, you want to go there? We can go there. We can go there. Jesus is doing all he can to try to help this woman with a lot of language and as few words as possible understand her great need. But because she is so relationally dysfunctional, she can only think about what it means for this man, number seven, to minister to her relationally help her relationally be what every other man has not been now it may be that all those all six the five she was married and the man she's living with now are all jerks i'm a man i know what it means to be one i I get it yeah we're we're brutish we're mannish i get it but generally speaking after three Don't you get a clue? Maybe it's not them. I'm just saying. Maybe they're probably over in the bar all talking about you right now. Five. Five. You need relational help, lady. You need help. And even you know it now to where you aren't, you aren't even going to commit to number six because it's too painful for you. But she's still on the hunt. She's still on the prowl trying to find somebody. Give me some of this water. Well, go call your husband. Now, you might think I'm taking liberties with the scriptures by applying some kind of ill motive to this woman. I'm not even saying it's ill. You find a good man like Jesus, you try to hook up with him. Could you find a better man, ladies? Could you find... If you're the Samaritan woman, where are you going to find a better man? 
ain't mad at her. Ain't mad. So you might think I'm taking a few liberties. I get it. But listen to what she says when Jesus asks her to go get her husband. Now, she's living with a guy, so she's got some degree of commitment to him. But she says this, I ain't got one. (laughs) She just threw her her man under the bus. Or all four hooves of the donkey. I don't know. (laughs) How do you do that to the guy you're living with? She doesn't even say, I got a man already. No. I don't have a husband. <laughs> He's saying, I'm available. I am, uh, I am unhitched, dude. <laughs> to which Jesus then stops where she's going and begins to turn, turn the conversation into a place that allows her to be helped. When we talk about ministering to people, Ain't, there is nobody out there who's clean. And the only ones who are clean used to be completely unclean. Nobody can take their own shower and get themselves right. And here Jesus knew that this woman was severely messed up relationally. Had no hope of fixing herself. And he doesn't blast her. He doesn't talk to her about her sin. And how messed up she is. How it's not proper to, to serial marry. <laughs> he doesn't do any of that. He realizes where she is. People, we are called to extend the kingdom to folks that don't, don't have a clue. Yes, they don't have a clue. They don't know which way is due north relationally. They don't know how to do the finances. They don't know how to treat people. They don't have a clue. And they're trying to be the best version of themselves. And they keep recycling whatever they have become yesterday. They don't know how to become greater because they can't. It's not in their DNA. Adam has, has miswired everything that is us so that all we know, the thing we know how to do best is be wrong. Every once in a while, a shining moment will happen in humanity. And what do we do when somebody does the extraordinary? Wow, he's a hero. Look at what he did. He sacrificed himself for so many. Wow. And we laud them. Why? Because most folk don't do that. We take what should be normal character and, and, and raise it to the level of extraordinary because everybody doesn't reach the bar. Nobody tries to figure out how to continually live at that level. We just jump every once in a while, hit it, come back down. And I'm grateful for all of the good that happens in this world. So grateful. But do you know how much good doesn't happen? Poverty still exists. Marriages are still a wreck. Teenagers are lost and don't even like home. They've got a place, but they're still lost. People are messed up. They need help. And the last thing they need is for the church to tell them how wrong they are every day. Jesus could have, but all he was trying to do is say, let me get you well. I got a solution for your problems. I got some help for you. I have some really well water here for you. Some stuff that will stop all the sickness in your soul and get you healthy. 
I got some water. You'll never have to come and drink at this well of relationship again. It'll fill you once I give it to you. Come and drink. Now, as I'm preaching this, I think it's important for all of us to have that perspective when we're going out there to extend the kingdom that we need to start with the good, not, not stress the bad. Not trying to figure out how I can tell people how wrong they are, but tell them how they can get right. But I think there are some people in here who need to hear how to get right. I'm glad you're here because that you are here means you're trying to figure out how to get right. But there's some versions of right, even if I tell them, you won't do because you like you're wrong. <laughs> this woman was shacking up. I know. It is the vogue thing. In fact, it's, it's unusual when a, a woman and a man are so in love and they're going to get married or they're thinking about being serious that they don't live together. Everybody thinks that somebody who doesn't live with their, 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 their what do I call them, friend, Girlfriend, boyfriend, I don't know. What do you call them? They're going to live with them. They think if you don't do that, what's wrong with you? You got to kick the tires, bro. You got to figure out whether it's going to work. Um, the, the stats say, and I'm not big on stats, but I'll just give you some, that that doesn't help. That you really don't get to know anybody well enough to decide whether that is the ingredient you need to confirm whether you need to be with them. Reason being, the reason they're living with you or you with them and not married is because there's a part of you they don't want to give. There's a part, let me say it differently, there's a part of them they don't want to give to you. They're hiding something, they're withholding something. And the only way you get to find out everything of who they are is when they say, I do. Because then they are all in. Otherwise, they're not. They haven't committed themselves to you. Now, what I'm about to say is going to make our attendance less next week. <laughs> I get it. I really do. I really do. But my job is to preach truth in these areas. <clears throat> Ladies. You ought to value yourself much more. He should not get the privilege that comes with living together until he says I do shouldn't and and you ought not give it to him thinking out why well, I might lose him okay there are other better men this is where you have to trust God and say Lord I'm going to serve you first before I serve anybody else and give myself to them and in order to to complete to consummate a relationship with whatever happens when folk live together. And I always speak in vague terms because of tender ears. In order to do that, a man ought to, he ought to pay. I ain't talking about money. I'm talking about with his life. He ought to pay.
His entire life ought to be yours. It ought to cost him everything. Everything. Because you're worth it. But when it doesn't cost him everything, you lessen your value. And gentlemen, you ought to love your girlfriend in such a way that you put God first rather than your desires. No, baby, I ain't going to do this. Because I love him first. He said, that is resigned for marriage. That's relegated for marriage. And I am not going to do this because I love him first. And because I'm going to be faithful to you while I have been given the privilege by you, maybe, to be able to go forward, I'm not going to do it so that when we do get married, and I do say I do, when I go on a trip, you know, if I'm faithful now, I will be faithful then. Because it's not you to whom I need to be faithful most. It's my God who paid for me and bled for me and died for me. And I've got to be faithful to him first. I've got to be a man of God before I'm a really good husband. So, if you're shacking up, move. (laughs) Or pay for an apartment for. Pastor, pay for. Pay for an apartment. It's cheaper than your sin is costing you. Plus, you'll have the beauty of building up an inheritance for your children. Whereby, when you tell them to do right, you'll have a testimony. Let me tell you what mom and dad did. It's no longer just do what I say. I give you our life. Joseph Bryan Garrison, Meredith Tellis Brookengrant. Your mom and I did it right. I give you my life. There's strength in this. I don't just give you an inheritance of money when I die. I give you an inheritance of relational integrity while I live. Ladies, I may not be all that, but you want minimally what I was. Minimally, you want what I was. Chased when I came to the floor of the the altar in the the church and said, I do. Kept my woman right. Now, there are so many who have not. I realize we're the unusual. But there is never a bad time to make a great decision. You can start all over today and have, you know, a whole three months before you say I do. You see how I did that, you know, yeah. Three months, six months, whatever it is. Three, to say, we were wrong, but we got right. When I heard, when I knew, I repented, I got right, and I I decided to treat your mama well. There's a testimony that can be given. This woman says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. When you're reaching out to people, there's a point at which they understand that you are either a Christian or no more than they know. 
And when you reveal that you know more than they know, according to the Bible, all of a sudden, they bring up their entire Christian history. Oh, well, my uncle was a deacon. What? Yeah, Mama used to take us to a church. We'd stay all day. All day we'd stay. We'd start morning, three-hour service, and we'd stay for chicken dinner, lunch, and after, and we'd stay at night. For yeah, I know about church. I know about... We should worship on this mountain, or should we worship in Jerusalem? Which one is it? She waxes eloquent with a religious objection, objectionable question. She's not, but, but see, when somebody appears to be something, all of a sudden, I'm traveling on planes a lot, and I try not to tell people what I am when I'm talking to them. And then all of a sudden they ask, and I can't lie. And we've been in the conversation for the last 10 minutes, and they have let one expletive fly after another. <laughs> and I'm just fine with it. I'm fine. Now, what do you do? I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah, well, my aunt. <laughs> it's textbook. And you, you, you don't try to blast them for covering up with a religious experience. You realize your, your goal there is to advance the kingdom, to help them understand who God is better. So Jesus pretty much just goes past. He said, that's not the issue. Every, there's not going to be a location upon which people place most of their trust. You're going to have to worship in spirit and truth someday anyway. Don't worry about that. Oh, oh, um... Well, I, I, I've heard, now not she's serious, because Jesus gave her hope. He didn't blast her. Gave her hope. When other people brought up her past, her parents brought up her past, you're an embarrassment to us. I can't believe you. We thought so much better of you than this. Other people, mm, there she goes. Everybody thought something about her. And Jesus knew about her and didn't blast her. And now he's given her hope. He says, you're going to be able to worship in spirit and truth someday. Location, not going to be the... Wow, you didn't. You knew and you didn't. Okay, let, let me ask you. You know, when, when Messiah comes, is he going to help us? What she's really asking is when Messiah comes, is he going to help me? Is he going to help me? Because I don't Jesus unusually reveals himself to her. And this is the first person on the planet to whom he's done this. To a Samaritan woman breaking all the ground rules. All the barriers. I, who am speaking to you, am he. Oh, let me tell you something. She was so excited. And Jesus knew this would happen as I closed. This is the part we didn't read. She goes back into the city and she says to everybody, come and let me show you a man who told me everything about me. There are a bunch of people who have, who have known everything about her and haven't affirmed anything, haven't given her any hope. She was so excited about Jesus because his version of presenting the kingdom allowed her to have hope. She wouldn't have to anymore dip her ladle into the well of relationship with another man. She could find fulfillment in Christ.
I don't know how much this is speaking to the ladies out there who have had your heart broken time and time and time and time again trying to find some X, Y who would fulfill your soul. There isn't one. Listen to me, there isn't one. Can they make you happier than sad? Maybe. Maybe. But we have a marriage ministry for a reason. Those who aren't married want to be married. (laughs) Those who are (laughs) trying to get out of it. Is there any freedom for me? I didn't sign up for this. I'm exaggerating, but listen to me. My point is... (laughs) My point is this, nobody on this planet can satisfy you. Nobody, only Jesus. Let's talk to him. God, we're grateful for all you do for us, Lord. The well that you have given us never runs dry. And we find fulfillment in it every day. Thank you. I pray you would help every person, not just woman, every person in here who has found themselves broken and disappointed and hurt because they kept dipping their ladle into somebody thinking that somehow that was going to satisfy them. Love me, please. Care for me, please. Speak to me like this, please. Embrace me, please. Accept me, please. And people always disappoint. God, would you please let them know that you never do. You accept us for who we are. But you love us so much, you you won't allow us to stay that way. So you help us change. You fulfill every one of our desires. 